Baby, if you ever wondered, wondered whatever became of me. I'm living on the air in Chicago, Chicago meteorite. Got tired of packing and unpacking, town to town and up and down the dial. Maybe you and me were never meant to be, but baby, think of me once in a while. I'm at Media Riot in Chicago. Hey everyone, this is Mark at Media Riot, broadcasting from Chicago. This week we'll look at Pacific Rim. In Slip Discs, we'll look at Punisher Warzone. We'll take a listen to new albums from Jay-Z and Phil Anselmo's first solo album. And in theater, we'll look at The Book of Mormon. Turn it up! would come from the stars but it came from deep beneath the pacific what the hell is going on the first kaiju made land in san francisco the second attack hit manila then the third one hit cabo then we learned this was not going to stop. In order to fight monsters, we created monsters of our own. We needed a new weapon. The Jaeger program was born. Two pilots, our minds, our memories, connected. Man and machine become one. Okay, first off, Pacific Rim is not about what I got offered at the massage parlor. That would have made for more adult entertainment movie. Okay, now that we have that straightened out, the movie Pacific Rim is about giant dinosaur Godzilla looking monsters coming through a portal in the Pacific Ocean and attacking cities and killing people. And as the tagline of the movie says, to fight monsters, we created monsters. Now, they didn't make the band Nickelback 40 stories tall. That would be a monstrosity. What did happen is, humans all over the world put aside political and social differences and created 250 feet tall robots. And like a video game, they go at it. Robots versus monsters. That kind of sums up the storyline, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way. It's supposed to be a summer blockbuster. It's mostly about the adventure. The one thing I will put in, der- in a derogatory way is that the movie is a blatant ripoff of Charles Band-produced 1990s classic Robot Jocks. 
In robot jocks, after a devastating global war, the way remaining countries settle disputes are by two giant robots, each piloted by, each piloted by one man, going mano a mano. Now, robot jocks had a way lower budget, but if you caught it on cable in the early 90s and love B-movies, this movie holds a special place in your nerd movie heart. I just wish somewhere along the way the makers of Pacific Rim gave due to robot jocks. But the robots are totally different, man, is what they'd argue, because there are two people piloting the robots in Pacific Rim, not one. Yeah, light years of difference. But the real lame part is stooping, no, more like slumming, to rip off parts of the movie Independence Day? Jeez, director Guillermo del Toro, I thought you were better than that. Your previous movies have shown you have way more creativity in your storylines. Okay, now with that little nerd rant aside, I'm actually going to give Pacific Rim three stars. And that's a bit of a push. I was considering a little lower, but the effects really stayed with me. Del Toro is a master, of com- is a master at computer graphics. He's more of Spielberg's heir than J.J. Abrams. Del Toro can make CG look natural. Now, of course, they're going to use computer graphics. So to those who complain about the use of CG and they don't look real and blah, 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 then don't see this movie. Del Toro actually respectfully puts a thank you to Ray Harryhausen in the closing credits. Del Toro knows his movie creature history. And if Harryhausen was alive today, I'm pretty sure he would be fine with CG being used to create some effects. It's just the natural progression of the technology. Now, even though we're watching CG, I never thought it looked cartoony, like Avatar. Seriously, people? Avatar's the top earner? Disney's Snow White looked more lifelike than those blue cartoons in Avatar. Anyways, I I very much enjoyed the effects. Some of the portions of the interior of the robots were actually built, and you know what? It's all seamless. I never thought, oh, that's a practical set, and that's a CG set. And the monsters are pretty good, too. Each time a monster appears, they're supposed to be adapting, so they develop new fighting styles with horns and spitting stuff. So it's a really cool cool progression to the final showdown. And now we come to the important part of robots and monsters fighting. First up, I need to frame this for you. Have you ever seen Singing in the Rain? Or better yet, its modern counterpart, a Jackie Chan movie. I'm totally serious about this. Both... Both movies do incredible things. They put the camera down and let things happen in front of it so that you can clearly see the action happening. Pacific Rim comes close to that. There are wide and long shots of the robots and monsters fighting. I could see a hand hit a monster's face. Now, I said close. There's still a lot of blurry shots, but this is way, way better the Michael Bay's cocaine and ADHD, I'm just guessing, induced messed up visuals. And I understand that the robots, I understand that the robots and monsters fighting at night in in the rain kind of help, you know, hide the seams. But at this point in CG effects, uh, can't they have a fight in daylight? Robot jocks did. Mm -hmm. But in general, it sold me enough. Not enough to want to see the whole thing in 3D, since a lot of Pacific Rim is shot in the dark, and 3D glasses are polarized like sunglasses, so it just makes dark dark things darker. But Del Toro does use a lot of neon colors, which might help. 
there were a few times, a few times in this movie where I wondered, I wonder how that looks in 3D. Now, I know I've been talking about the special effects a lot, and that's because, well, the lead human characters are kind of bland, which actually kind of surprised me. Del Toro is not just a CG nameless blockbuster director like Gore Verbinski. Del Toro is a director who uses CG to enhance his already interesting characters. I did read that over an hour of the movie was cut to try to keep it closer to a two-hour running time, which was a good thing because it did keep the pace moving. But uh, most of the material removed was character development. But, really, the actors aren't that great to start, so I can't imagine them talking anymore would have added to their so-so acting anyways. They weren't horrible, they just weren't memorable. You know, you, you have a generic hero, a girl, a wacky scientist, the hard-ass who hates the hero but learns to love him. Del Toro didn't underwrite the characters, he just chose actors who can't be as big as his robots. Now, there are some decent uh, uh, supporting character performances from Idris Elba, Charlie Day, and Del Toro mainstay Ron Perlman, but this isn't going to get them any nominations. To wrap up, I would recommend seeing Pacific Rim in a theater. It has some awesome visuals, but some so-so acting. I also want to point out there were a couple of small things that stood out or irritated me, and not only the Robot Jocks ripoff. The name of the robots are Jaegers which is German for Hunter. But you know what? Every time they said Jaeger, I wanted to do a shot. And no one in the movie called their robot the bomb, like Jaeger bomb, or Mick, like Mick Jaeger. Del Toro is, a, is known to be a huge anime and monster movie fanboy. So he holds whatever those movies have done in reverence, even if it's kind of stupid. Also, I don't know how much Del Toro had input in this, but this movie was obviously made to be marketed to a world audience. You can see the producers and the marketing guys saying, can we add another Asian person, you know, to open up the Asian market and make this guy Indian, because that market's on the rise too. Mind you, in the story, this has nothing to do with any actual characterization or story development. Like the last half of the movie takes place in Hong Kong, and Hollywood studios want a piece of that billion Chinese people market. Now, you might argue that Star Trek is a multinational cast, well, when it was created in the 60s, Roddenberry was trying to show that humans can move, move beyond borders. Pacific Rim is just ploying to squeeze every dime out of every country. Now I'm going to go watch Robot Jocks. Under the sea, under the sea, darling it's better down where it's wetter, take it from me. Up on the shore, they work all day, out in the sun, they slave away. While we've been voting full time, you floating under the sea. <laughs> Down you are, the fish is happy, as after the waves they roll. The fish on the land ain't happy. Now we move on to slip discs. Ever since Media Riot started, there are a couple of personal favorite movies I've always wanted to talk about, and here's one of them. I am sometimes stunned at which movies make money and what doesn't. I think that Michael Bay's Transformer movies are some of the worst movies ever made. And the sad part is, I'm its target, target audience. I grew up with the toys. But Bay's movies can be filled with horrible stereotypes that border on racist and action scenes that are incoherent. Yet they make tons of money. And I think to myself, is this what people want from an action movie? Or even in smaller budget action films where it's human versus human, not robot? Some movies, it just stuns me at what people like. 
we're going to take a look at a movie that general audiences didn't embrace while at the theaters, but is finding a strong second life on video and TV. Punisher Warzone. Punisher Warzone is an exciting action movie that delivers what you want and with style. It's over the top at times, like the Punisher shoots a guy with a grenade launcher. Unnecessary? Yeah. Great visual? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> the one thing that has not been understood in other Punisher movies is that the Punisher is not really an interesting character. His only drive in life is to punish cr criminals. That's it. Hence, the Punisher. He's not looking to do anything else. He at one time had the perfect family life, but now it's gone. And now he's obsessed with vengeance. Not the first person to come to mind to host a talk show. Since the Punisher, whose real name is Frank Castle, is more of a presence than a person, look at a Punisher movie more like the first Terminator film. Schwarzenegger only had about 17 speaking lines and is gone before the movie finishes, but it's his presence and single-minded drive that makes him memorable. Warz Punisher Warzone uh, captures that completely with Ray Stevenson. Built like a brick shithouse, like Schwarzenegger, you know all you need to know when he shows up. And when needed, the sadness and the emptiness of his life is captured in his face and eyes without maudlin or shallow attempts. Stallone, take note of this. Like the Terminator, the rest of Punisher Warzone is filled with excellent B-movie characters. Actors who were born to play the cop or the mobster or the widow. There needs to be a stock character Academy Awards. This movie would have cleaned up. Wayne Knight, Newman from Seinfeld, has played the second banana character so well for so many years, he never seems out of place as the Punisher's armorer and intelligence gatherer. Proof it takes some natural talent to be captivating on screen. Ashton Kutcher, Jessica Alba, they're just going to start using cardboard cutouts of you soon. Since the Punisher is only black and white, the villains need to bring the color. And Dominic West's portrayal of the villain Jigsaw is almost neon pastel by the end, but still terrifying. And his brother, Looney Ben Jim, played by Doug Hutchinson, fills out the vicious sidekick that would make Jaws of James Bond fame proud. Lexi Alexander has brought uh, a bright and exciting eye for action films and brings to life one of the most famous one-dimensional characters. The reason the Punisher with Thomas Jane failed is that he viewed his character as akin something to, like, Taxi Driver. Wow, putting a fat man in a little coat there, Mr. Jane. Do it right. Get a guy who looks like he can kick your ass, not a guy who's acting like he thinks he can kick your ass. And then line up some colorful bad guys and unleash. For 100 minutes, you can turn off your mind and enjoy, but you won't be insulted or talked down to while thoroughly enjoying your sugar rush. Oh, and if you feel, you, if you feel the need to look up the Dolph Lundgren Punisher movie... It does make for an interesting side-by-side-by-side side of all three takes on The Punisher. My take on it is that the Dolph Lundgren version is better than the Thomas Jane version, but the Thomas Jane version is lesser than the Ray Stevenson version. Talk amongst yourselves. Generals gathered in their masses just like witches at black masses Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning 
Jay-Z's latest album, Magna Carta, Holy Grail, deals with how awesome Jay-Z is and how much money he has. Uh, yeah, that's about it, actually. Ah, oh, shit, I have to film about five minutes here. <sighs> all right, all right, okay, okay. Magna Carta, Holy Grail is Jay-Z's 12th studio album. Let's take a listen to a track. I just want a Picasso in my casa, no my castle. I'm a hassa, no I'm an asshole. I'm never satisfied, cannot my hustle. I want a Rocco, no, I want a brothel, no. I want a wife that fuck me like a prostitute. Let's make love on a million in the dirty hotel with the fan on the ceiling, uh. All for the love of drug dealing, uh. Marble flaws, uh. Gold ceiling, uh. Oh, what a feeling. Fuck it, I want a billion. Jeff Coon balloons, I just want to blow up. Condos in my condos, I want to row up. Christie's with my Missy, live at the MoMA. Bacon's and turkey bacon, smelly aroma. Oh, what a feeling. I'm the new Jean Michel, surrounded by Warhols, my whole team ball. Twin Bugattis outside the Art Basel. I just want to live life colossal. Leonardo da Vinci flows, Ricardo Tisci, Givenchy clothes. See me thoning at the Met, voguing on these niggas, champagne on my breath. Yes. And we're back. Now I've never listened to a Jay Z album from beginning to end. Like most people, I've listened to his singles. But through his singles, we've learned that Jay-Z famously grew up in the projects of Brooklyn and sold drugs and led a gangsterish lifestyle, which he has talked about ad nauseum for years. But through bravado and some, some talented rhyming and marketing, he's become incredibly successful, running a record label, owning a professional basketball team, a clothesline, rock aware, and now a sports agent. It's nice to see he has some hobbies. Oh, oh, and he's also Mr. Beyonce and Blue Ivy's dad. So as we can see, Jay-Z lives a lavish lifestyle, and he's earned it. He's a good businessman, knowing when to invest, and knowing how to market the Jay-Z name. He is one of his own greatest business ventures. Now for all the interesting things this guy's probably gone through, he has almost nothing interesting to say on this album. Only three out of the 16 songs in this album are not about the money or stuff he has. He tells us 13 times how much shit he has. He lists so many expensive brand name items like Bugatti and Rolex. At times I thought he was just reading a list of things he had insured. Now the three, three songs that aren't about his shit are Part 2 on the Run a song with his wife, Beyonce, about a couple on the run from the law. There's a nice, loving interplay between them. 
and the song Jay-Z Blue, which you can probably guess is about his daughter, Blue Ivy, who Jay-Z thinks she shits diamonds in her gold-plated diaper, and he will try to raise Blue the best he can, even though he had a rough young childhood. And the song Nickel and Dimes, and a little bit on La Familia, he loves his homies, and hopefully he can make them wealthy too. Not as wealthy as him, but still. Now I'm giving this album two stars. It might sound like I would give it a lower rating, but Jay-Z has like 20 producers on this album, so he has some amazing beats to rap over. At times I wish I could have just tuned down the vocals and nodded my head to the only to the beats. I also want to bring up, I have no idea why this album is called Magna Carta Holy Grail. I'm not sure if it's to one-up Kanye West in his Yeezus album, because there is nothing political or religious on Jay-Z's album. Maybe a shout-out to God for making Hova so friggin' wealthy? I guess maybe because it sounds cool. Also maybe because maybe the Magna Carta and the Holy Grail are the two things Jay-Z can't buy... yet? <laughs> Which makes sense. If I was making a rap album, it would be called Dodge Omni Condo Association. Two things that I want that are almost within reach. I can't really recommend this album. After two songs, I got bored with Jay-Z's lyrics... Plus, I always thought Jay-Z had a weak voice. I mean, you ever hear him actually talk? He reminds me of Milton from Office Space. And then after about five or six songs, I got bored with the beats. After listening to Kanye's awesome album and Jay-Z's album, here's a good analogy. Kanye is like Simba, who has grown up and beyond his uncle Scar, Jay-Z. When Kanye boasts, Kanye has believable intensity to really make you believe he thinks he's God. And also, to make you believe that when you sing along, you don't feel silly for saying that. And also, Kanye has bravado to spare, so you feel as good as he does while you sing his songs. Jay-Z, as of late, doesn't have that big bravado or interesting lyrics that he thinks he still has. Money. Money. Recently out is the first solo album from metal super god Phil Anselmo of Pantera and Down fame. Actually, his solo outing goes by Phil Anselmo and the Illegals, but this is off Phil. Let's take a listen to a track from Phil's album, Walking Through Exits Only. Yeah. 
and we're back. Phil Anselmo has been a major fixture on the metal scene for over 25 years. He's actually been quite a prolific artist on the metal scene. He's been the lead singer of three successful bands, Down, Super Joint Ritual, and most famously, Pantera. Now, the shadow of Pantera will always hang over whatever Anselmo does, but he's never been one to let one band keep his boundless energy just to them. He started down while he was still in Pantera, who at the time were THE metal band of the 90s. He also dabbled in other bands, most defunct now, like Christ Inversion, Southern Isolation, Viking Crown, and Ebion. But there is one other active sideband, Arson Anthem. He also produces and guest vocals for other bands, and he has his own record label, Housecore Records. He seems to be busier now than in Pantera's heyday. So after sharing for so much for 25 years and now wanting to go solo, does Phil still have something to say? Yes. But is it interesting? No, not really. I'm giving Walking Through Exits only two stars. First off, the music is overly frantic, and not in a good way. You know how that friend of yours was in a metal band in high school, and when they got together to play, it was loud and fast and rocking, but none of it really matched up? It was like four guys more or less playing four separate speed metal songs? Now, in an interview with Rolling Stone, Anselmo was quoted as saying, It was an interesting record to make because I wanted to change things up. I did not want to do your basic 4-4 thrash record. That's already been done and heard, and probably done better years ago. I wanted to fuck with the formula and maybe step out of tradition. And for me, I wanted to make a record that could sit next to anything that is out there that is considered extreme or over the top. But I wanted to make a record that would be very, very hard just to slide into some genre or subgenre of extreme music. Whether I did that or not, we'll know in a year or so. Year or so. That was my intention, and I feel pretty good about it. I wanted to make an ugly-sounding record. I wasn't after all the shiny gloss of a mainstream record. I wanted to make an ugly-sounding, very hard-hitting, percussive record. And yes, he made an ugly-sounding record. Phil's comments there make me think of industrial bands, say like Nine Inch Nails, but earlier material. They wanted to make hard-hitting and difficult-to-listen-to mu- music, but their songs did have a focus. It didn't sound like a practice jam. Now, all the musicians involved on Phil's uh, album are talented guys, but I don't think they're talented enough to do a free association jazz-style speed thrash metal album. Now, there's a subgenre that doesn't get enough notice. But I would have loved to have heard Phil scatting a little bit. Which would have been good because the lyrics are a little messy too. Also in the Rolling Stone interview, Phil was asked, <laughs> was asked about the first song off the album, Music Media Is My Whore. He is quoted as saying, uh, For me, on this record, it's all about showing a different side of sarcasm that I have. I've heard too many people. Uh, I've heard too many times where people say that I'm this ultra serious guy. In truth, I've got an extremely absurd sense of humor. I thrive on the absurd. I love it. It's really my way of poking back at fellows like you. You get to you get the free reign to write whatever you want about me. So just a little poke back at you. But if you take a look at the lyrics on that song, it has absolutely nothing to do with the fucking media. It's more of an introduction to what you guys are about to get with the rest of the record. So, yeah, Phil can be a funny guy. And I guess the song Bedroom Destroyer with lyrics like, And I'll devour this place, sober and drunk, sober or drunk, hail to the king of the pillow and the pill, my scare, my screams scare the birds out of every single tree for miles, 
with a voice once heard but best forgotten, trapped inside a closet inside 30 rooms and a half a mile. I grabbed a knife, but there is no fight. I've grabbed a knife, but there's no fight for me. Tantrum. Bedroom destroyed. Bedroom destroyer. Um, that's supposed to be funny? You know, like a dry humor, like Monty Python? Now, I know metal lyrics are better with music, and they're usually about angst, anger, booze, and girls, but I'm at a loss at what the hell Phil is trying to say in this song. I understand he's been writing lyrics for 25 years, and he wants to show you a different side of him. That's still rock, mind you. But a lot of these songs, I just, I guess I'm not metal enough to understand what Phil is talking about. I'm glad that Phil is going strong and branching out, and the last Down, Down album was pretty good. But it seems Phil works best in a full band setting, focusing his ideas. One, two, three, four. Hello, my name is Media Mark, and I would like to share with you an entertaining musical. Playing now at Chicago's Bank of America Theater, and also out on a national tour, is The Book of Mormon, famously written by South Park creators Trey Parker and Matt Stone. Let's take a listen to a song. To be teaching of Christ across the sea, but I allowed my faith to be shaken. Oh, what's the matter with me? I've always longed to help the needy, to do the things I never dared. This was the time for me to step up, so then why was I so scared? A warlord who shoots people in the face, what's so scary about that? I must trust that my lord is mightier, and always has my back. Now I must be completely devout. I can't have even one shred of doubt. I believe that the Lord God created the universe. I believe that he sent his only son to die for my sins. And I believe that ancient Jews built boats and sailed to America. I am a Mormon. A Mormon just believes. You cannot just believe part way. You have to believe in it all. My problem was doubting the Lord's will instead of standing tall. I can't allow myself to have any doubt. It's time to set my worries free. Time to show the world what Elder Price is about and share the power inside of me. Mormon 
And we're back. Now I'm assuming you've heard about this musical. The show's hype is about as famous as the musical itself. It's been touted as the greatest musical of the new millennium. I beg to differ. Personally, American Idiot is the greatest musical of the new millennium. Followed by Wicked, then Avenue Q, then Book of Mormon. I'd actually call the Book of Mormon the musical for people who don't go to musicals. Being touted as, from the creators of South Park, puts an unspoken safety ring around Book of Mormon saying, you're not going to see a cowboy singing about beautiful mornings, but you are getting a bunch of dick and poop jokes and pokes at Mormons. Because if you're not a Mormon, you've probably made a joke about them. Now, I'm not going to deny that Trey Parker and Matt Stone are two of the most talented comedy writers of the past 20 years. There will be classes about comedy writing where they are part of the curriculum, next to Mel Brooks, Woody Allen, and all those other groundbreaking classic TV comedy writers from the 50s through the 70s. Also, as much as these guys are versed in TV comedy writing, they are also musical theater junkies. South Park, especially the, mu- the movie, is just a musical, just like a Stephen Sondheim or a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical just with more dick jokes. And the guys were smart enough to team up with Robert Lopez of Avenue Q fame. All of their sensibilities and talents lined up perfectly. The story, <laughs> the story for this musical probably almost wrote itself. Now in interviews, Stone and Parker like to say they're skewing all religions. But seriously, of all, <laughs> of all the mainstream religions, Mormonism has the shakiest doctrine. Jesus came to America... Founder Joseph Smith translated the words that would be the Book of Mormon found on a set of gold plates that had been buried near his home in western New York by an indigenous American prophet. Right. (laughs) The songs probably just poured out. Just pick your favorite bit of Mormonism, throw a little piano with it, and you get a song like, I Believe, with lyrics like, I believe that in 1978 God changed his mind about black people. Or... I believe that God lives on a planet called Colbol. I believe that Jesus has his own planet as well. And I believe that the Garden of Eden was in Jackson County, Missouri. (laughs) They didn't need to make any of it up. It's all there. They just had to wrap a story around it. Wrap a story around it. This is the Mormon doctrine. This is what they really believe. (laughs) So, the story in Book of Mormon about these Mormons is about... I'll give, you th- I'll give you a second to think about it. Mormon missionaries. Golden Boy Elder Kevin Price and Nerd Boy Elder Arnold Cunningham are paired together for their first trip as missionaries. Price, hoping for someone as cool as he is and to be sent to Orlando, ends up with Cunningham and being sent to Uganda. In Uganda, the boys are pretty much sent to hell, or whatever the Mormons believe. A brutal warlord terrorizes the village they are sent to. The villagers are the villagers are starving, and almost everyone in the village has AIDS. Price, not looking for a challenge, almost immediately gives up on converting people, while Cunningham, wanting Price to like him and be his friend, starts weaving in Star Wars and Lord of the Ring mythology into the teachings of Mormonism to make the stories more exciting. And you know what? The Ugandan villagers eat it up, lining up to be converted. Soon, Cunningham and his fellow missionaries are now top missionaries. But when the church leaders show up to see what the boys have done, they're not happy to learn what the villagers have been taught. Like that Joseph Smith fucked a frog God gave him and his AIDS went away. (laughs) 
Then a great wizard named Maroni came down from the Starship Enterprise with the golden plates. Now, just telling you the plot of Book of Mormon is good for a laugh. This is one of the funniest large-scale Broadway shows to come along since Avenue Q. The performances are bright and aloof, like most Mormons can be, and it is stuffed with jokes. They probably had to cut material to get the show to fit into a uh, bearable two-and-a-half-hour runtime. And the songs in the show shine and are as funny as the dialogue, but the songs are the weakest part of the show. This is why the Book of Mormon only gets three stars, and it is not the greatest musical of the new millennium. Like I said, the show is stuffed with material, which leads the songs to be too wordy. A musical works better when the songs are used to share a character's feeling. It can move plot along, but it shouldn't only move the plot along, which most of the songs in Book of Mormon uh, do. Songs need room to breathe. The best way to see if a Broadway musical works is if you can sing any of the songs when the show is over. Another issue with overly wordy songs is that it leads to the talk-sing style, which seems to be the new popular style for Broadway. Now, yes, Broadway songs must evolve from the simplicity of a song, say like, Wash That Man Right Out of My Hair, from South Pacific. And yes, musical theater god Stephen Sondheim more or less popularized the uh, talk-sing modern style of musical theater, showing that not all Broadway songs need to be loud and or jangly and only about love, but can be filled with some plot momentum, but not every single song, which Book of Mormon does. Now, luckily, the songs are so funny, you don't mind it, that at the time, it's just the talk-sing style. But tragically, less talented composers have lazily used this style more and more in the past 20 years. A perfect example of this much maligned style is the show In the Heights. It is a terrible, terrible show. No one sings their songs. They kind of rap rhyme and primarily talk to their songs. I couldn't tell you one song from that show. With that aside, the songs in Book of Mormon do have a positive side to them. If you are a musical theater fan, you will see that Parker and Stone are even larger musical theater fans than you are. A majority of their songs are parodies of musical theater songs. Famously, the Book of Mormon song Hasadiga Ebowa is a parody of the Lion King's Hakuna Matata. They even mention that song in Hasadiga Ebowa. And the song You and Me, but Mostly Me, is a parody of Wicked's Defying Gravity. These guys are truly clever. But, but, because they want to parody musical Broadway musicals, all these songs are done in a showstopper style. They're loud and brassy, and after a certain point, all the songs sound the same. Luckily, once again, those lyrics are funny, though. Okay, now I know it sounds like I'm being a little nitpicky, but the show was two and a half hours. And how many times can you hear a Everything's Coming Up Roses style song? So, should you see Book of Mormon? Oh, Heavenly Maroney, yes. There's a direct line from Mel Brooks to Stone and Parker showing that you can have clever, lowbrow humor in a Broadway show and have it be a complete success. There's a bright golden haze on the meadow. There's a bright golden haze on the meadow. The corn is as high as an elephant's eye. 
looks like it's climbing clear up to the sky. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. I got a beautiful feeling. Everything's going my Hey everyone, thank you for streaming or downloading this latest episode of Media Riot. Media Riot is brought to you by the Florida Tourism Board. Florida, the home of Rush Limbaugh, Casey Anthony, LeBron James, and now including George Zimmerman. Florida, home for the sun, not our awful ignorant people. Florida, Media Riot is an ill noise production, and we'll see you next time. Bye now. <laughs>